Section 12 of A Bunch of Keys, Where They Were Found and What They Might Have Unlocked, a Christmas book, edited by Tom Hood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Key of the Study, Part 1, by W. J. Prowse There is still, upon the table of the study, a plain old writing-case, with here and there some dark stains upon it that have been there for years, which no one has effaced or will seek to efface. As the dull night closes in, and the thickening gloom of the shadows fills the room, a big man, bearded and brown, sits wearily by the hearth, smoking, and gazes intently at the fire. Pictures enough he sees there, but in not one of them any hope for the future, in not one of them any consolation, for the pictures are all pictures of a past whose soul and life have gone out of him, leaving him in middle age less lonely and less miserable. And yet, as he looks, he seems to see, wistfully regarding him from the very heart of the fire, a face, no longer indeed bright and cheerful, but sombre in its melancholy beauty, which might make him very happy even now, but for stern restrictions and restraints. Soon the image fades away, and in its place comes that of an old man, grey-haired, and with an awful look of pain in the dark eyes, and he turns with a dull sob from the fire to the table with the writing-case. No need to tell him what the stains mean, for there again passes through his soul the misery, acute and sudden, of a night long ago. Outside the old house the wind is rising. We change the scene. The theatre is full, and there is a burst of plaudits as the great actress sweeps upon the stage, with her long black tresses flowing negligently behind, with her dark eyes fixed and solemn. And again there is a burst of plaudits when the wonderful voice, the voice that seems almost breaking with its heavy burden of passion long suppressed, fills the great house with the glory of its sound. She can play upon a thousand hearts as the artist upon his violin can touch what string he likes, and make it vibrate tremulously at his will. But as for her own heart, can she rule that? When the play is over, when she has reached her home, see how wearily she too sinks into her chair by the fireside. Once only she rouses herself from her dull lethargy. It is when her husband enters the room, and then, petulantly, not with the strong sweet accents that have so sovereignly swayed the crowd, but with almost the peevishness of a sick girl, she tells him she is weary, and implores him to be gone. For her, too, there are pictures in the fire. From whence had they started, this broken man, this broken woman? The story is a long one. It takes us back twenty years. Of the three persons named, only two then knew each other. The third, you perceive, the husband, intrudes. Let us get away from that lonely study, in which the soldier still broods over his grief. Let us get away from the actress's home, where she mourns over the past. Let us get out into the open air, and take the story up where it began just twenty years ago. Captain Grant, who had served with much honour in India and elsewhere, was then a widower, forty-five years of age, and with one son, Donald, a lad of eighteen. He lived in an old house that had been inhabited by his family for many generations in Argyleshire, not far from the shores of Loch Awe, and his life was happy enough, for, after much hard fighting and many wounds, he was yet alert and hale, and saw his son growing up from a glorious boy into a glorious man. The youngster had never left that lonely but beautiful region, nor had he yet felt any desire for a different life. There was no keener angler, no surer shot in the whole county, 
the mere physical enjoyment of existence was vouchsafed him in full measure and it was spiritualized too by an intense love for natural beauty the mystery of the lonely tarn the weird wonder of the mountain mist the glory of a highland cataract roaring in flood and the luxury of the purple heather all these thrilled him with a vague delight which was the more powerful because he had as yet no morbid anxiety to know its source very noble was the love between father and son both were so proud of each other both could trust each other so thoroughly as he strode along over the moors gun in hand you could hardly see two finer types of manhood the father knew no reason why his happiness should be disturbed for it was then purest when his son shared it with him captain grant had lived hard in his time his youth had been stormy and passionate but at length he was won over to a better life by the lady whom he married and there had since been only one heavy cloud upon him it was that which darkened his home when she died but now this had also passed into a tender and gentle memory which lent an inexpressible charm to his affection for his son to keep this son out of temptations under which he himself had often fallen to rear him into a gallant gentleman pure and truthful and brave these were the captain's aims and for eighteen years he had no fear of their realization of late however there was something in the lad's manner which to eyes that saw keenly because love lent them force denoted a critical change and the captain beheld it with a certain glee if also with a certain fear he knew its meaning did this good gentleman he knew that his son must have discovered the existence in our charming world of a beauty which beats that of tarn moorland and stream now the captain having had his own experiences in these matters was not surprised to find that the boy was often melancholy without seeming cause that he grew in fact a little less earnest about salmon and grouse and a little fonder of long walks without either rod or gun noticing the change the worthy old warrior did not ask himself the question what is it the worthy old warrior only asked himself the question who is she whereupon taking counsel with himself alone as became a good gentleman who had seen much of the world and its ways he revolved within his brain the names of all the eligible young ladies in the district whom his son had seen he knew enough to believe that an early marriage to a true helpmeet is the grandest happiness that a young man can have and is also his stoutest shield against evil and sorrow if donald were in love with lucy stuart or flora lennox or any other scotch maiden whose father's lands lay near his own and whose blood was as pure as that of the grants themselves why there could be no earthly cause to prevent donald after a few years from marrying her he could have wished that the lad would tell him at once but he knew that young love is seldom confidential at its commencement that it broods upon itself and finds something very sacred in its secrecy so without any serious misgivings the father waited until his son who hitherto had kept nothing hidden from him should ask his aid in this matter also in which position of affairs there existed the elements of great happiness for both of them if donald had selected an eligible young lady if on the contrary donald had not well there was the chance of an awkward explosion for the captain with all his affection had in him great faculties of anger and the fierce family pride of a highland squire but as yet he had no reason to believe that donald had made any unworthy choice the lad had been kept free from the dangers of the city and the captain knew from the clear bright eyes which met him so frankly and so lovingly every day he knew from his son's ruddy cheeks from the eager exuberant health that seemed to breathe in his every movement that donald was as pure as a girl in her nursery whilst he was as strong and as brave as became the son of a soldier without laying traps then for the lad's secret 
he watched that magnificent young animal's movements with a curiosity which was not absolutely free from a certain sense of amusement. Donald Grant went up Glenorchy early one September morning. The glen is one of the loveliest in Scotland. There is nothing grand about it. None of the savage sublimity of Glencoe, for instance. It grows very fine, it is true, as it widens out towards Loch Awe, with the rugged outline of Ben Louis on the one side, and the massive bulk of Cruachan on the other. But to anyone who comes upon it after traversing the loneliness of the Black Mount, or the wide waste moorland that stretches away from Glenetive up to Lochranach, it is apt to seem tame. Wander down the glen quietly, however, following the course of the stream, and you soon begin to recognise a peculiar and delicate charm about the valley. You have had your fill of ruggedness and desolation, and there is a wonderful sense of rest and peace in the rich woodlands that border the stream. Not that the Orchy is a tame and sluggish river, winding on past melancholy willows so slowly that you can scarcely tell which way it is going, if, indeed, it is going at all. No, it is always brisk and rapid, and when a night's rain has helped it, it rushes down to Loch Awe with all the speed and glory that beseem a highland river. Thus coursed it when Donald went up along its banks. The morning was exquisitely bright. The mists that had been thronging round Cruachan for days had passed away in frantic wreaths and curls, and in the clear air every crag of the grand old mountain seemed distinct and close. Striding along, the lad was soon some miles up the glen, and close to the falls. The sunshine played marvellous tricks amongst the pine trunks, and seemed absolutely to glow and burn where it struck upon the red berries of the mountain ash. Musically murmured the orchy, swelling into a more solemn song as the lad drew near the great boulders over which the river rushes to the deep pools beneath, and the sky was flooded with light, and the air was flooded with music, and the heart of the lad was flooded with love. As he paused near the cascade and looked around him, he seemed a natural part of the glorious scene. The place would have been lonely, perchance. Something of its charm would have gone out of it had it lacked that tall young fellow with the keen bright eyes that glanced about so eagerly, with the long golden hair that danced so merrily, with the manly form, the broad shoulders, the long arms, with a bonnet on his brow gay with sprigs of heather on which the dew was still wet, with the long folds of the kilt falling into new shapes at every movement of the supple limbs, health and strength and highland air and eighteen. If anybody could not be content with these, he would be hard to satisfy. Yes, but there is something wanting still. Such a glorious young lover needs a mate. It all depends upon circumstances whether the reader will believe that at the distant glimpse of a gown, the sunshine became at least twenty times more bright and beautiful, that the Mavis and the Merle and the Throstle and a host of other choristers all began to sing away as if for dear life, almost choking their delicate little throats in their wild and ecstatic hurry to pour out the largest possible number of notes in the smallest possible number of minutes, that the waterfall suddenly glowed with a kaleidoscopic iridescence of exuberant colour, compared to which a hundred double rainbows would have seemed like a dull cloak of hodden grey, that there went rushing through the boy's veins a torrent of passion to which Niagara is Dutch, and that then his soul reached a serene elevation to which the top of Kimbarazo is the bottom of a coal-pit. Yes, if the reader has ever been deliciously mad, he, for we must not talk of she, will understand all this. Yes, he knows that it is impossible to grow extravagant or hyperbolical about that young lady. Poor Donald Grant. Mary Horton was not a young lady. No, but she was very beautiful and looked all the more so, perchance, because her beauty was so different from his own. The subtlest harmonies, whether of sight or sound, are those that spring from contrast. The lad was handsome, 
with the ruddy colour of the north. His long hair was golden, but with a glow in it warmer than that of gold. The girl, again, had the dark tresses, the deep eyes, eloquent, fiery, intense, of the south. His was the grace, the beauty of aggression. Hers, as passionate as his, seemed pleading and submissive. As he stooped down, so that they looked each other fairly in the face, he seemed like some Norse rover who had travelled, let us say, in Spain, and did not intend to return to Norway alone. Their eyes met. They told each other so much more than the few stammering words of greeting, that the girl turned her head aside, trembling a little at the eager glance which seemed to devour her secret with an almost cruel triumph. She was not a lady, as we have said. She was the orphan daughter of very poor people. She was— melancholy fact must be admitted only a lady's maid a clever girl was mary horton too romantic no doubt had chiefly nourished her brain upon novels and saw in donald as fine a young hero as any reginald de courcy or alarid de bowen who had ever for love's sake married a damsel of low degree poor little girl with such splendid possibilities in her with such eyes such a voice she was not over-safe in a world where men are selfish often in the very degree of their passion. She knew this, too, in a dim way, and her dreams were often sorely troubled when the ladies whom she served had dismissed her for the night. Were these novels true, that she had read so eagerly? She hoped they might be. But, but, but she could hardly hope that the gentleman would be true to her. Besides, was she fit for him, fit to be his wife? There again, poor little Mary, knowing her own deficiencies, felt herself very helpless and forlorn. It is lucky for girls that they can cry. And yet she was safe enough with Donald Grant. Had that young gentleman been able to do so, which he was not, he would then and there have married her offhand. Would the union have been a happy one after all? Well, there would probably have been troubles and difficulties and sorrows, which their young heads had never thought of. Meanwhile, it was very sweet to be thus alone together. Two hours after this, an observant and intelligent Scottish man of the menial persuasion received from Captain Grant two things. Number one, a guinea for valuable information. Number two, a kick for having played the spy. He accepted both with serene imperturbability. No one in the captain's house had a pleasant time of it that day, and at dinner, Donald could see that something had crossed his father, whilst the father could see that his son was ill at ease. The captain suffered least, for his morality, after all, was little more than the conventional code of honour prevalent amongst men of the world, whereas the poor lad was horribly in earnest. Nay, if we were to anatomise the old campaigner's feelings very deeply, we might discover that the amorette, for he could not believe that it was anything more serious, really vexed him very little. Boys would be boys. This girl— who was said to be so pretty, must be easily got out of the way, and so on, and so on. Wronging all the while two people, one of whom was inexpressibly dear to him, and both of whom were pure. Perhaps, thought he, it was not worth while to open the campaign in force. He would get Donald out of this dangerous neighbourhood, of course. Calf love was not at all unnatural, and did not usually last very long. Thus mused the old campaigner and on the whole resolved not to commence the attack just yet, but to remain within his trenches. Imagine the veteran's dismay when, of a sudden, the enemy dashed into his lines. "'I—I I want to speak to you, sir, very seriously,' quoth the audacious Donald. The shock was over, the surprise was over, 
It had been a severe one, and the captain was annoyed to find that in the confusion of the attack he had absolutely spilled a glass of claret, but now he was on his guard, and a great deal cooler than the assailant. The rebel force was evidently embarrassed. There was plenty of pluck about it, but very little discipline. In fact, it at once endeavoured to deprive the inevitable conflict of its most sanguinary features. "'You have always been a very good father to me, sir,' cries rebel, not at all in a determined manner. "'Well, my dear boy, I hope so,' answers British veteran, seeing his advantage, and quietly massing his forces against the weakest point of the enemy's line. "'I hope so, Donald. Surely that's not the very serious business.' "'No, sir, but—but, but, you know, sir, I'm past eighteen. "'Delightful age,' replies the captain, "'and really, paternal vanity apart, Donald, "'I never met with a finer young gentleman at that period of life. "'Come, my boy, out with it. "'It can hardly be very serious after all, I fancy. "'Not likely to prevent you from trying the deep pool with me tomorrow morning, eh?' "'By this admirable strategic manoeuvre,' The great tactician indicated, without ostentatiously announcing, his knowledge of the enemy's movements. Indeed, sir, it is very serious. Now, Donald had carefully rehearsed a clever speech, and had Donald's father committed the enormous mistake of being angry, that speech would doubtless have been delivered. But as matters befell, Donald, not without an unpleasant suspicion that he was rather mismanaging a case which had seemed delightfully clear early in the day, could only stammer forth, the fact is, sir, I'm in love. And, to his utter discomfiture, replied the captain, My dear, dear boy, do you think I didn't know that already? There was nothing for it now but a plain confession, and a plain confession it was, which the father heard with a growing pain as the son went on with a growing earnestness. But then the captain changed his tactics and fought sternly. The danger was more serious than he had thought, and, as his last word, he uttered an absolute and peremptory, No! God help me, then, cried the lad. I must do my duty. Indeed, sir, if you could only see her, if you could only know how good she is. Be good enough, Donald, to remember that you are talking to a gentleman, and that I can't go to look for my son's wife in a servant's hall. I deal with you plainly. I will not have the thing spoken of again, Donald. It must cease, sir, now and forever. And here the battle ended. For, with a stormy sob, the boy rose from his seat and left the room. He was miserable enough, but he was not half so miserable as his father, who still sat at the table, with strange pangs torturing him, and a dreary fear of the future at his heart. This boy whom he so loved, of whom he was so passionately proud, this boy to fling away the prospects of a life for a pair of black eyes, he would not have it, and yet how nervously he shrank from another unkind word. Then when it grew late, he went sorrowfully to his son's room. The boy was asleep, but sleeping uneasily, and at times indistinctly muttering words whose meaning the captain fancied he could guess. Then the captain's heart yearned again towards his son. And as, after he had silently and solemnly blessed him, he prepared to go, a gentle smile passed over the boy's face. He woke, and saw his father beside him. Then first, ere he was quite conscious, he lovingly held out his hand for the familiar farewell clasp, and then remembering, turned away his head, crying bitterly. But not so bitterly as his father, who, cut to the very heart by the sight of this sorrow, bent over the boy's bed and kissed him, so that their tears mingled, and their souls too, and besought him, in the broken tones which are so terrible to hear when a grown man utters them, to be wiser. 
and what he could not have done by mere persuasion, nor by mere exercise of will, he did by this great grief of his, and though the lad groaned as he gave his promise, he promised that he would in all things obey his father as before. Then there was peace between father and son, but after a civil war you don't find people settling down quietly to their old avocations. The old order can't be restored by a proclamation, the struggle has left wounds that throb and rankle, heart-burnings which cannot be stilled. When the two next met there was a difference in their bearing. The old entire and utter confidence and love were gone, in its stead there were other feelings, stronger and more intense, but less pure, less spontaneous. Each knew that this change had come over their relationship, each was angry with himself, grieved at the other, each was determined not to show this embarrassment, and hence both, much against their will and wish, were really awkward, talkative at the wrong season, silent at inconvenient moments. Donald had given his promise, and never dreamt of breaking it, but there was a wild tempest of passion raging within him, and storming against his resolution. You can hardly expect eighteen to sacrifice its first dream without something in the nature of an explosion. Now, young love is generally selfish, but let us do the boy the justice to own that so far as he knew, he was angry and wild simply because he had promised to abandon her. What seemed his grievance was the thought of the sorrow she would have to go through. She went through it very well. Women fret themselves abundantly over imaginary sorrows, give them a real grief, inflict upon them an actual pain, and they bear it much better than the Lord of creation, who is rather given to cry out in a lordly way when his pangs become acute. There was one more meeting between the lovers, whereof the captain had full cognizance, for the son was morally a prisoner on parole, and he was a gentleman. And at this meeting, with many tears, many sobs, with wild fiery glances of passion and unutterable murmurs of regret, the two gave up their dream. It was in the evening that they met, and at the old trysting place, but the brightness of Glenorchy was gone. Sorrowfully they parted, and as each went homeward, the solemn mists of the night rose in the valley and hung heavily about the mountain range. Slowly they walked away, nor for some time could either bear to look round, but at length Donald, turning, saw the girl dimly and obscurely fading into the mist, and wandering alone up the gloomy valley into the great darkness that lay beyond, and a chill touched his blood, and a dreary vision of long separation, of tender yearnings for reunion never to be fulfilled, a vision of a life barren and purposeless henceforth, passed before him. Querulously seemed the river to mourn as he walked along, and still the mists thickened. He reached home. His father waited for him with a stern anxiety, in the fear that his last interview might have led the boy into forgetfulness of his promise, but in the forced gaiety of the sun, in the strange light which gleamed from his large eyes, ay, and worse than this, in a tone of polite submission which he had never heard before from Donald's lips, the captain knew that it was all over, that for good or evil the trial had been undergone, and that the youngster had passed sentence upon his folly. For good or for evil? Could there be any doubt of it? Of course it was for good. And now Donald must leave the place, must see something more of the world, must have something to keep his mind from brooding over his grief. They would go to London, they would see the great city together. His own knowledge and experience would keep Donald free from many dangers. The boy acquiesced with a gallant air of cheerfulness, which did not deceive his father, and then, filling a huge glass, drank as a toast, laughingly, Goodbye to Glenorchy! Yes, goodbye to Glenorchy, and to all the old happy life, to the morning plunge in the burn, to the midday rest on the moorland, goodbye to the old peacefulness, the old perfect trust. 
Father and son had been one, and were two. That was all. Except, indeed, that poor little Mary Horton's heart seemed breaking when this cruel, cruel end came to her poor romance. London had upon Donald Grant the effect which London frequently has upon young gentlemen who have warm blood in their veins and a touch of fire in their nature. London first repelled him, then attracted him, then satiated him, then wearied him, and as he went through these various phases and conditions in the order named, he naturally got a good deal altered from the lad who was ready to sacrifice all for love, except his duty to his father. He had often seen the sun rise in the highlands. He got to be familiar with the rising of that luminary in London, the difference being merely this, that he himself in the highlands used also to rise, and that in London he had not been to bed. Babylon has many cunning lures and artfully meshed nets. She catches young folks in her toils very easily. But it is not only young folks that she catches. Captain Grant was to have guided his son, but who was to guide Captain Grant? We shall see, by and by, how it went with him. Meanwhile, this at least was certain, that his boy was no longer a boy, that he had grown into a man, and a man who was not happy. No, when the London fever began to run into its later stages, Donald had a profound contempt for his own weakness. He had wasted much and learned little. His heart was growing weary. He had tried to fill it with poor semblances of love, to no purpose. Although the affection for his father had not become weaker, it had undergone a change. It was a sad time for Donald, when he began to see that his father, after all, had faults and errors, which were not all of them of the generous kind so readily pardoned in youth, and so seldom repeated in age. The town life palled upon our young Scot, who tired of wasting his years in a dull round. Society bored him, and when he went into the wilderness to kick up his heels, he found that Bohemia was quite as tiresome as society. What to do? At any rate, to get away, to travel, to work, to fight, to live a life with some real excitement about it. Captain Grant, on his part, could not but feel that it was he who had changed the boy, and he could not cheat himself into the belief that the change was really for the better. After all, had he blundered? He could not believe that. He had kept Donald from disgracing himself by a marriage with one so far below him socially as Mary Horton. But he was fain to remember that there were other bonds of disgrace and that if his son was now more worldly-wise, he had purchased a knowledge which did not seem to make him any happier at the expense of much nobler qualities. Somewhat tarnished was this bright boy of his. Some of the London atmosphere had got into his lungs, let us say, and he did not breathe so freely. Their house grew to be a rather sad one, and at length both felt that they would be better apart. Never an angry word passed, or could pass, between them, but there were now reserves and suppressions which were perhaps worse than positive quarrels. The captain was almost relieved, after all, when he knew that his son was willing to go to India. The son was glad when he got a commission. End of section 12. Recording by Squeaky.